Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, so we've been reading through the book of 1 Samuel. We are 24 chapters in. We'll be finishing it by the end of July, and then we're going to go into 2 Samuel. Those stories are kind of intertwined, and I want them to go together. When we finish 2 Samuel, we'll be in Thessalonians towards the end of the year, and then by December, we're going to start Luke. And Luke will take us all the way through uh, the beginning half of next year. We're going to walk through Luke. Um, And then next summer, we'll go through Kings, and that'll kind of finish up the story of the kings of Israel, and then we'll be prepared to go into the minor prophets, which I'm really excited about. But today, uh, I thought it would be helpful to kind of step back a moment now that we're 24 chapters in. I thought that now is a great time for us to look at a timeline. Uh, So I'm gonna ready my light uh, laser sword, uh, and if you'll put up on the screen the timeline This is just really simple, but as I was reading through and preparing for the message, I figured, you know, it might be helpful for us to kind of get a sense of when some of these things happened. So if you look over here on the far left, Samuel anoints Saul as king was the first major event um, after the whole issue with Eli and Samuel at the beginning of uh, 1 Samuel. Once Samuel takes uh, kind of his responsibility and his role as prophet and also judge. He is the last judge. Israel cries out they want a king, and so Samuel anoints Saul as king, and that happened around 1050 BC, okay? Around 1025, so about 25 years later, Saul is habitually disobeying the Lord. He is asked to do one thing. He does the opposite, or only does 90% of that, and checks it off, calls it done, and God has had enough And the reason why God has had enough is because what God is doing is not just picking a king for Israel because Israel wanted a king. What God is doing is fulfilling his word that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. There is an issue on planet earth and it is sin. Sin is in the heart of every human being from the moment of conception. And it's an issue that humans can't fix for themselves. Somebody outside of this world has to address that issue for us, and God sent his son Jesus to fix that for us, to be, to to take on the punishment and to be our holiness, to, to, to take on our sin on the cross and to raise into new life as the first fruits of us who would also then be raised into new life. But in order to get there, God has to ordain a family and a lineage in order to bring about that Messiah. And so all through the Old Testament, there's these promises. There's one's coming, there's one coming, there's one coming. And he's gonna gonna be like a judge, but he's gonna be better than a judge. He's gonna be like a king, but he's gonna be better than a king. Well, how is this guy gonna show up? Is he just gonna one day like walk out of the wilderness and be like, hey, everybody, I'm here and I'm here to save you. Where did you come from? Well, don't worry about that. No, there is a family lineage that is tied to this promise. And so what we're seeing is God deciding how this prophecy of the Messiah would come about. Whose family lineage is going to come through? 
and the Israelites know that they're the chosen people because God called Abraham out. He was the chosen one. And so everyone in Abraham's lineage is like, who's it going to be? Who's it gonna? And so you can just imagine every young woman who she gets pregnant, she's like, this might be the one. This might be the one. And there's so much excitement in this community about God choosing these people in order to accomplish his purposes. And so then you get Saul, and, 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 and so it's like, oh, is it going to be Saul? And all of a sudden, Saul's disobedient, and you find out, well, it's not going to be Saul. It's this kid who watches sheep because shepherds are better kings. Shepherds make the best kings. And so we find that Samuel is told by God to go out and anoint David as king. That happens in 1025. So now you've got this young kid as king, is anointed as king, who hasn't actually stepped into the role as king. There's a functioning king, Saul. David is anointed as king. Some people know, some people don't. And it creates this weird, awkward situation because then David gets brought in under Saul and starts working for Saul. And it lasts about two or three years before Saul starts realizing, I think this kid is going to replace me. And he starts getting upset about it and it starts bothering him at night and the Lord starts adding on to that by sending him tormenting spirits. And all of a sudden now, every time we see Saul, he's got a spear in his hand. He wants to pin somebody to the wall and he's angry at David. Well, about two or three years after the anointing, that's when all the chaos starts. And in, in, in 1011, by the end of this book, uh, 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel, we're gonna find out Saul is gonna die. Sorry, spoiler alert, he does. He dies, Jonathan dies, everybody dies. Everyone does die. <laughs> you can't escape that. So decide what, you, decide what you think about Jesus now. Okay, so Saul dies 1011 BC, and this period of time, right here, right about 1023-ish to about right around here, 1012, 1011, we call this the wilderness years because Saul is hunting for David relentlessly. And David has to flee his home, his wife, his family. He's got to put his family, his mom and dad in hiding. And he's running through in the wilderness, hiding from Saul. This is the period of time. That big block of white right there, that's the period of time we're currently in right now. Now, that's important because these wilderness years, you'd think, well, the wilderness years, like I've, I've heard wilderness over and over. Children of Israel, they wander in the wilderness. It doesn't seem like a great thing. Let me tell you, it's not a great thing. Wilderness years are not great things, but they are fruitful things. All right, so we're not told that God is always gonna give you everything that you want, but he is a good God and he will give you everything that you need. And sometimes what you need is wilderness years. He's gonna lead you through some times where you're gonna learn that you don't have it within yourself in order to supply your needs. You need him. And he, so he brings you in these wilderness years through seasons of dependency on him. So you learn about yourself, but also you learn about him. You learn about his nature and his character. There's something about human nature where we really only learn what, we're, what we need to learn when there's a time of crisis. And so God in his mercy and his love, he gives you crisis because he wants you to grow and he wants you to learn. So where we're going today in 1 Samuel 25 requires a map. So let's throw that up there. We're gonna to start today over here, just drawing in a little uh, red square on where we're zooming in. It's a Middle East area. And as we zoom in, I'm gonna populate the map with a couple different locations. Some are familiar to you, some are not. Uh, Gibeah, that should be familiar. That is where Saul is from. That's where the current kingdom is. Then you've got Ramah. This is Samuel's hometown. When we start the chapter, we find out that Samuel has passed away. This is the town he's passed away in Ramah. We've got a couple other places referenced. En Gedi was from last week. This is the situation where Saul went into the cave to go to the bathroom. David was in that cave. They have this confrontation. Uh, David displays that he is a merciful kind of guy, and Saul 
gives some counterfeit repentance, and then they part ways. So last week we pick up over here in Engedi, but today we're going to pick up uh, where we find out that David and his crew has moved over here into the area of uh, Ziph and Maon, and there's this guy named Nabal who lives in Maon and has a a business in Carmel, which is about a mile up the road, and they have this interaction. There's also this reference to Hachilah as we get into 1 Samuel 26. So this is the orientation, this is the map, this is where we're gonna be today. I'll post this and the timeline on Slack afterwards so you guys can have those um, and frame them and put them on your wall at home. Because I spent a lot of time on them. I'm just kidding. All right, 1 Samuel 25, let's get into verse one. And we're going to go, let's go verse 1 to verse 11. That'll give us enough of the story to kind of pause and reflect on it. First Samuel 25, verse 1, it says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, or Carmel, The man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And the the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. Now, the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Now, that's important because it reads at first glance like Calebite is like a dig on him, but it's not. That's actually a reference to the fact that that, that's Caleb all the way back from like Moses' um, day. Remember Caleb and Joshua, um, all the the, like kind of the heroes of the faith faith when they crossed over into the promised land. That's Caleb. Caleb was from the tribe of Judah and David was from the tribe of Judah. So that reference there is to imply that this guy Nabal should have been good friends with David because they came from the same family. But as we know, not all family members get along very well. And that's what we're gonna find here. This reference is, is there to let us know that these guys are of the same family, but not necessarily of the same mindset. Verse four, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Here's what I want you to say. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. They missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. And David's young men came, and they said all of this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Let's pause there. So this chapter starts off giving some context to what happened to David after his interaction with Saul in the last chapter, and we find out that David is doing what David has always been doing, Saul's job. He's wandering around in the wilderness. 
He's keeping tribes and cities safe. And one of the family members that he happens to be keeping safe is this guy named Nabal who's got tons of sheep. He's keeping all the bad guys away. He's making sure that no one's attacking them in the middle of the night. And now we've come up to shearing season and David wants to send some messengers to Nabal. Hey, we have been looking out for you guys free of charge, just out of the kindness of our heart because we're from the same tribe and that's what we do. We just look out for one another. Is there any way that now that we've been looking out for you, you could extend the same gratitude to us and also look out for us and, and take care of us? And what we find is that Nabal responds with an unbelievably harsh rebuke. But before we get there, I wanna take a look at this, um, this envoy that David sends to Nabal. Because as I'm looking at this text, David sends Nabal 10 men with a message of peace and generosity. Okay, go to this guy and let him know how generous I have been. This, this story, and, and here's the beauty of scripture, and I've said this numerous times, prophetic things in scripture are never just prophetic one time. When God declares a thing, that thing always comes to pass, but that thing comes to pass over and over and over again. And as you start reading through scripture, you start making these connections. You're like, man, I feel like I've heard this story. It's because you have. You've heard it four times. Just the characters were different. And that's the beauty of scripture. Because as you start dissecting and reading and, and immersing yourself in these stories, they start popping up again and again, and they give you metaphors and references for, for the way you're supposed to read the story. Because none of this stuff stands on its own. It's all connected to the larger story, which is God's story. So in this story, the characters are David and he's sending his men. And David is kind of like a functioning king but doesn't really have a crown yet. And he's sending an envoy into the city saying, hey, I've been a generous guy. Will you accept my offer and be generous back to me? And the prophetic aspects of this draw our minds over to Luke chapter 10. Do you remember when Jesus also, this descendant of David, who is a king without a crown here on earth, sends an envoy of his disciples, two by two, into the cities and tells them, I want you to spread the good news. I want you to bring a message of peace and generosity, but I also want you to do the kind of thing that David did when, when he sent his envoys over to Nabal. I want you to remind the people that we have also been keeping the kingdom of darkness back. All those bad guys who are hiding out on the hills, they're not bothering you because we're in town. Jesus sends his disciples in, and the thing that we're told in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, is that when, he walks, when these guys walk in, one of the primary things they're doing is they're casting out unclean demonic spirits that are possessing people. And that's, to us, it's like, I don't know if in my life I've ever seen a possessed person. If you have, you'd know it. The idea that one of the things that this coming king does is set people free from demonic possession is a big deal. That these demonic spirits enter into human beings, image bearers of God, and torment to the, them to the point where they cut themselves and burn themselves with fire and cry out in the middle of the night. And even though they're held by chains, they break those chains and they're under torment day and night. One of the things that Jesus does when he shows up on the scene is he sets people free from torment. That's good news. 
That's great news. And so this prophetic story, you see it in David, and then you see it in Jesus, and then you, you see it in the Great Commission. One of the things that Jesus tells uh, Christians, hey, I want you guys to do the same thing that you've been reading about all throughout the Bible. I want you to go into the cities and I want you to proclaim peace and, and, and goodness. I want you to be my ambassadors. I want you to move into the cities and I want you to be a blessing to everywhere you live. And just the sheer fact that you are filled with the presence of God, you being in a city is going to keep darkness at bay. You living holy lives is spiritual warfare where you live. Obeying Christ keeps the enemy at bay. That's good news. It's good news for a town if Christians move in. It's good news if foreign tribes who have never heard the gospel of Jesus hear the good news of Jesus. The gospel changes everything. The Holy Spirit shows up and starts setting people free. So here's the rub. Why is it that if you've got a king sending envoys into a city, letting them know, hey, I've been kind to you. I've been keeping darkness at bay. I've been setting your people free, keeping all the bad guys out. Having us around is good news. It was good news for David. It was good news for Jesus. It's good news for, for Christians uh, to show up to your town today. Why, is that, why does it seem like such a good deal and why nobody wants it? Why is that? Why is Nabal's response this way? You would think that it was good news that somebody's been keeping all the bad guys out of your land. Man, thank you. Here's a thousand wedges of cheese. Go bless your men. Here's a bunch of grapes. Man, thank you. Nobody doesn't want it. Why does he respond that way? And why do wicked men today respond the same way that Nabal did? I think we all kind of know why. It's because the invitation that there is a king who's been keeping darkness at bay and being kind to you when you didn't even know his name, that invitation when the envoys show up and say, hey, let me tell you about this guy named Jesus. We're not delivering a message. Jesus says, hey, isn't this nice that he's been kind? The invitation is, isn't this, he's, isn't this nice he's been kind? Won't you now acknowledge his rule over your life? See, that's, that's the issue. There's a gospel being presented that Jesus is just this, this kind Santa Claus who just, just is benevolent and just gives all these things and he's just kind, he's just gift after gift, and all you have to do in, in response is just, is just be kind back. Just, just take the kindness and just be kind. Just as long as you're loving your neighbor, that's all that's demanded of you. That's wrong. That wasn't the message of, of, of David's man. That's not the message that Jesus sent his disciples out, and that's not the message that we're supposed to be carrying. Here's the message. There is a king who rules all the nations currently, right now, and he has been kind and benevolent, and he's offering you salvation free of charge. Nothing you have to do. All you need to do is believe, and you will be counted among him. But it does require that you surrender the crown sitting on your head. And that's the issue. And this is what I find with most people that I talk with about the gospel, and you may find this too. The issue for most people today isn't that historically Jesus actually existed, or that most of the evidence presented is true or not. 
For some people, that's the issue, but that's not the issue for most people. The issue for most people is the issue it's always been. If I follow him, I have to surrender my ways. He's got a different way and a different plan and different morals and different standards than me, and if I call him king, that means I can't be king. That means this world that I trust can't be king. That means my entire structure of functioning on planet Earth is now disrupted, and I have to follow a new king. And for Nabal, it was too much. So he responds with this harsh rebuke. Let's find what happens in verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. And David said to his men, all right, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 men remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed against them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were out in the fields, as long as we went with them. This was the message of the uh, original envoys. They were a wall to us, both day and night, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. And therefore now, excuse me, therefore know this and consider what you should do for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. So Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And he said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness. So now David is, now the scene is switched. David is talking to his men. And he's saying that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. All right, so David hears of Nabal's insult, and his response is to take up his sword. David wants vengeance because of what Nabal said, which is fascinating, because up until this point in the story, every time we see David, David is filled with the Lord, except for now. At this point, David isn't filled with the Lord. He's full of himself. And I've told you over this period of wilderness years that over and over, God is teaching David these really important lessons he's gonna need to become king as he steps up and steps into his role as king. This is another one of those lessons. And the lesson is this. Revenge has no place in the heart of God's people. 
Now that's important for David to learn because if he's going to be a king, which is an extension of God's sword, David can't be using God's sword for his own personal revenge. That's the reason why vengeance shouldn't live in the heart of God's people. Because if it does, then you start thinking you're acting on his behalf and you start doing things that he never asked you to do. And you start seeking revenge. Now, revenge in this day looks different than it did back then. No one's gonna go take a sword and 400 men to go showdown with somebody who insulted you. But that doesn't mean that vengeance is absent today. Today, vengeance looks like a clever comeback or retaliation or this deep desire we have on the inside of us to constantly get even or have payback. That's what vengeance looks like for most of us today. The idea that you cannot stand if someone has called your character into question, you have to answer that. Or the idea that someone has one-upped you in a story and there's just, I gotta tell a better story. This doesn't plague everyone. Everyone has their own thing that they struggle with, but this is the thing that many of us struggle with, especially men. We just can't let it go. If someone makes a point that puts us in our place, we don't like being put in our place, so we're gonna make a counterpoint, and it keeps going, and it keeps going, and it keeps going, and it never ends. God wants David and us to understand something very important. Vengeance doesn't belong anywhere in the heart of God's people. Why? Because Deuteronomy 32, 35 says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance, the response, all of that should come at the hands of a perfect judge who can judge perfectly. That's why God says vengeance is mine, because he's the only one who can judge perfectly. He's the only one who sees clearly and perfectly. And in your heated emotions, where you're just gonna fire off that email and let this person have it, you aren't seeing things clearly and you're not judging justly. So go ahead and let him handle this rather than you. I can already start to feel, some are like, well, you don't know my specific situation. That person really needed to hear it. There is a sense inside of us where we feel like the greatest thing we could do for the Lord is speak the truth. And many times that's true, but have you ever considered that the greatest thing that you could do for the Lord is to shut your mouth? It never crossed your mind. (laughs) It's a humbling way to live, but it is a gospel way to live. And the reason why it's a gospel way to live is because every time you play that, that, that game or you gamble and feel like, I have to say this thing that is true to put this person in their place, the thing that comes back on you is a smudge on your character. Now you're not known as the gospel forgiving person who only treasures the Lord and wants to talk about the goodness of God and why it's so fruitful to turn to him and away from sin. Now you're known as the guy who just wants to be right. And no one likes listening to the guy who wants to be right. 
And that's a problem if you're supposed to be presenting the gospel, if no one will listen to you. So how does David learn this lesson? He learns the lesson through the mouth of a woman. Praise God. (laughs) Praise God for women. Praise God for wise wives who help us see things that we can't see in ourselves. Praise God for lady wisdom who shouts in the street, you're being a buffoon. (laughs) Don't call, don't send that text, don't say that, don't go there. Let's go to verse 23. It says, when Abigail saw David, so she caught him in the street just as David is going to kill her husband, she catches David. She hurried and got down from the donkey. She fell before David on her face and bowed down to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, oh, on me alone, my Lord, please be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Nabal is the word for fool. That's Hebrew, that's fool. But, but I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. And then, my Lord, as long as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. David, you've got some character in this land. Everybody's talking about how you won't take out Saul. Don't take out my husband and let that be a blemish on your character. That's what she's saying. And now let this present that I've brought, all these wonderful uh, fig cakes, let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. So she's starting to butter David up a little bit. God's going to take care of you. You don't need to take care of this self. But I love what she says in verse 29. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, and, as, and, and the lives of your enemies shall, shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Why did she say that? Because this is the homeboy that killed Goliath with a sling. She's like, David, I know who you are. I read the news. Everybody's talking about how good you are and how handsome you is and how you, you, you're not going to kill Saul and how you killed that big Goliath guy with a sling. Like, I'm going to tell you what God's going to do for you. You don't need to kill my husband. I'm telling you, the lives of your enemies, they're going to be tossed up in a sling and they're going to be slung across the whole world. Like, you don't have to worry about your enemies. God is going to take care of you. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you with prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. Mm. No one's going to be say, nobody's going to be able to say at the end of this day that you saved yourself, David. If you turn around and you spare my husband, God's going to do what he's going to do. And everyone's going to know that you don't touch David because God's going to be against you. And when the Lord has dealt dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, you beautiful thing. I added that in there. 
the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you. You have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal as much as one male. And then David received from her hand what she had brought to him, and he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So he told him nothing at all until the morning light. And in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as stone. And when 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, he died. See, Abigail confronts David in the wilderness and she speaks as Lady Wisdom that we read about in Proverbs 1.20 and Proverbs 8.1. And I want you to hear the way that the wise woman framed exactly what David needed to hear, exactly the way he needed to hear it, and I want you to hear the Holy Spirit speaking to you exactly the way you need to hear it today. She crafted her message in such a way that was so wise. She said, David, your character is what's on the line here, not your reputation. You don't need vengeance. You need patience. You don't need to get even. You need to wait and watch the Lord work on your behalf. The moment you take this into your hand and work your own salvation, this is going to work against your character, and it's going to haunt you when you become king. You don't want that. I see what God is up to. And I'm here as a wise woman trying to help you see it. And in the same way that wisdom spoke through Abigail, wisdom is speaking to us today. Now there's some of you in here right now, you're already starting to think about whatever, whatever situation the Lord has been working over you about. Somebody has wronged you or slighted you or called into question something about you uh, or, or, or is spreading lies about you and they're telling everybody in town and you have a decision. Do you want to work your own salvation? Do you want to bring about your own purposes to shut that person's mouth? Do you want the last word? Or are you going to trust the Lord? There's some of you in here, the issue that you're struggling with isn't necessarily vengeance. It's this sense that it's you against the world. And that every situation you're in, you're right and everybody else is wrong. And it creates inside of you this sense of, of justice. And in turn, it puts you in a situation where every conversation you have with every person, you see the worst part of that person. It doesn't matter what conversation you're in, you're assuming the worst about the person. There's some of us in here who, um, your unrestrained response in previous situations has now called into character, or called into question your character now. And just as Abigail was trying to get David to wake up from him being full of himself, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you today. Hey, wake up. Stop being a tyrant. Stop thinking the worst of people. 
That's not who you've been saved to. That's not the model that Christ gave you. You have an unbridled tongue. That's not the example Christ has given you. Everything you post, everything you send, all it is is putting blemish after blemish on your witness to the point where people don't want to hear the truth you have to say because they have to wade through all of the garbage of your daily nonsense. So this is the beauty of this passage. You've got Abigail, this beautiful woman, speaking truth to David, and you've got the whole, the beauty of God through the power of the Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts today. Stop being like that. Stop going on a tirade. Stop putting everybody in their place. Follow the example that Christ has set for you and watch what God works on your behalf without having to do anything. This is one of the reasons why Paul encourages the New Testament that Christians aren't supposed to take each other to court. Are you seriously think you're going to stand before an unrighteous judge, a non-believing judge, and think that he can decide justly between the two of you who are believers? Can you not settle it between yourselves? This is uncomfortable territory to get into because this is beyond the, like, don't have adultery, don't murder someone. All right, I got all that. But now you're telling me like he's treading on the territory of my heart about what I think about people and, and how I respond in specific. Absolutely. He loves you too much to let you keep living the way you've been living. So David hears Abigail's words as I pray that you will hear the words of the Holy Spirit today. He takes everything into account and he allows God to judge Nabal. He allows God to be the one who executes righteous judgment. And we find out that God does it and it's amazing. Verse 39, we're gonna finish this chapter. So David heard that Nabal was dead and he said, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head and David sent and spoke to Abigail to, uh, to take her as his wife. And when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. This is a kinsman redeemer situation. There's no record of her having a child, kind of the same situation as Ruth. Now she's got no children, no husband, no family. She's got nowhere to go, and David's going to redeem her as a kinsman redeemer. Verse, four, uh, verse 40, uh, 41, and she rose and bowed her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaiden is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. And then this weird verse 43, David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. And Saul also had another wife, uh, Michal, his daughter, uh, David's wife, but to Palti, the son of Laish, who was given to Galim. So he had a wife that was Saul's daughter and then that, da that wife was given to somebody else. So before we get into 26, there's, there's this weird thing we have to cover, okay? Why does David have multiple wives? He's a righteous guy, what are you doing? Well, why do you have multiple wives? Well, there's a couple arguments for this. One would be, um, it's tradition, all throughout the, the history of Israel, 
um, kings or judges or people of prestige. They had multiple wives. There's another argument for uh, pre preserving the family lineage. Uh, there's this idea that, well, if you're, if you're going to be uh, king, there's, uh, you're in everyone's crosshairs, and so constantly people want to take you and your family out, so you've got to have a lot of children in case somebody wants to come in and take out your kids so that the family lineage is pre preserved. Um, another uh, argument is uh, just pure desire, which we know had a part to play as David comes in and takes his uh, throne. He, his, his desire for women isn't tempered, and there's this situation with Bathsheba. But the bigger question we have to ask is not why does David have multiple wives, is why does God allow David to have multiple wives, okay? Because here's the standard from the very first book. Marriage is between one man and one woman, okay? Not one man and nine women, okay? Not one woman and nine men, not one man and one man and, and one woman and seven women. It is one man and one woman, that's biblical marriage. Now, from that, we see lots of examples throughout scripture where people seem to be kind of adding to that. What do we make of that? Well, I don't know that I have the end all answer, but I, I've got a couple things that I think shed light on this. Why, Marshall, why do you think that God allows David to have multiple wives and, and Solomon as well? because I think that God allows us to see the foolishness of our sinful decisions by giving, giving us exactly what we want. Because here's what always plays out. You've got a guy in the Bible who says, I'm gonna take a wife, and I've got this wife, and I love her, her name's Sarah, and, I, and I'm, I'm Abram, and things are great, and we're, we're good, and God promises this child, and we can't have a child, and so a plan comes up, why don't you take this other wife, have a child with her? That was nothing but trouble. And the same thing you, you see through all the other patriarchs. All of a sudden, you've got a husband, so he wants to take another wife, and a third wife, and a fourth wife. All, it, it is never a blessing for a man to have more than one wife. <laughs> Ever. Anywhere in Scripture. It is constant torment. You don't want more than one wife. But why does God allow it? He allows it to show us the foolishness of how bad we want something that's outside of his boundaries and his rules. He says, no, what I've given you is enough. Ah, it's enough except for I want to add two or three more people into this marriage. I want to marry her, 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 and her. God's like, you know what? I'm going to allow you to do that. And then you're going to suffer for the rest of your lives because every one of those kids are going to be fighting for dad's competition. Every one of those wives are going to be fighting for your comp, and they're going to be fighting with each other. I think that's why God allows it to do it. So that it stands as a parable all throughout time about how foolish it is for you to think that you could go beyond whatever it is that God has given you. He says, this is yours. You're like, yes, this, and also that, and that, and his thing, and her thing, and that thing. No, it's foolishness to want more than he has given you. And if you keep after it, he's gonna give it to you, and it's going to be torture for you. So. With that, let's go into 26. 26 is a little bit shorter. We're getting low on time, but I want to get through this. Um, that's funny. Like the pastor, 25 verses. We're just going to get through it. Okay. Um, if you want a, sh a church with shorter sermons, you'll have to go somewhere else. First uh, Samuel 26. Okay, so this is interesting. This is a really important chapter, and this is the reason why I, I want these two chapters together, because they, they parallel each other. 
This chapter shows that David learned his lesson in 25 because it demonstrates the idea that he is not after vengeance anymore. He listened to Abigail and he is responding um, with wisdom. So verse, 20, uh, verse 1 and 26, it says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hahilah, which is on the east side of Jehimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. So Saul encamped on the hill of Hachilah, which is beside the road of the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. And while he saw that Saul had come after him in the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come indeed. So the two of them know each other that they're in their region, but David actually has intel on where Saul is. Saul doesn't know where David is. So David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped, and David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner, the son of Nair, the commander of his army, was laying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah. Now Abishai, so uh, Zariah is uh, David's sister. We learn that in 1 Chronicles 2.13, where there's brothers, they were all passed over, and then there's, I think, two sisters. One of his sisters, Zariah, has a son, Abishai, and another son named Joab. So Abishai is David's nephew. He says, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping with the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, I will not strike him twice. Why is that so fascinating? Because in Hebrew, that phrase, pin him, is the same phrase that's used all of the times when we're told that Saul had the spear in his hand and he threw it at David to try and pin him to the wall. What Abishai is saying is, David, it's poetic justice. In the same way he tried to pin you, please, let me pin this fool to the ground. I will avenge you. Let me do this. And what does David do? He just learned a lesson about vengeance. Let's see if it's stuck. Verse 9, David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. Who am I to say how God's going to take him out? He might die at a ripe old age. He might die in battle, but he's certainly not going to die right now by me bringing about my own salvation. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his hand and the, water, and the jar of water and let us go. This is the reason why I wanted to read this is because it shows us that he learned his lesson in 25. But even more than that, he didn't just learn his lesson, now he's teaching the lesson. And this is the value of the wilderness. Dads, don't be afraid to walk through the wilderness and to do the hard thing, because in doing so, you might just spare your son from having to walk through the wilderness. You wanna conquer that, that fear that paralyzes you now, that anxiety that, that, that drives you, you wanna conquer that now so that your kids don't have to conquer it. You don't wanna pass that garbage down. You want to walk through the wilderness and do the hardest of hard things now so that your kids don't have to do it because you were too weak of a man to do it. 
When you walk through the wilderness, you learn lessons that God teaches you, but they're not just for you. They're for the next generation. What you learn in the wilderness is so the next generation doesn't have to wander in the wilderness. The Joshua generation was able to go into the promised land because they learned the lesson of the previous generation who wandered in the wilderness. This is the value of this story. That David didn't just learn, I'm not the one to take vengeance, but he's also teaching this lesson to his nephew. Let's finish it, 12 to 25. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's hand, and they swept, they, they went away, and no man saw it nor knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon you. Now, the question you just had of like, how are these dudes standing here in the tent talking to each other and no one's waking up? Right? It's because the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon them. David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. He called out to the army and said to Abner, hey, uh, will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, who are you who calls to the king? And David said, are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over the Lord, over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water was at his head. Hey, hey, uh, a bodyguard to the king, you're not doing your job because I was just there and I'm holding his spear and his water jug. And Saul recognized David's voice immediately. Is this your voice, my son David? David says, yes, it is my voice, O Lord, the king. And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear my words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may he be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. What you're doing to me, you're driving me out of my own land and my own home. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. And Saul said, I've sinned. Please return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of your young men come over and take it. And the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I will not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And then Saul and David, Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Now that last verse 25 is interesting, because the invitation back up in verse 21 is Saul says, return, come home, stop wandering in the wilderness. But we're told in 25, David didn't take his offer. And the reason why is because the last lesson David learns in his leadership wilderness uh, school is that when you're a leader, the only thing you really have is your word. Saul says, I'm sorry, come home. And David says, I don't believe you. 
you've said that before and I no longer trust you. See, when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to leadership, all you have is your word and your character. If people can't trust what you say, you have no foundation to build on. If you have empty words, then you have an empty kingdom. Now, all these stories are fascinating. They're all great. And the lessons that come with them are fascinating. They're important lessons. The lessons of don't take vengeance, the lessons of, of, of be the kind of leader who whatever you say actually happens. You don't say things and then they don't happen. You don't lose your cool. You know how to bridle your tongue. These are all important lessons, but all of them are cast against this one fascinating backdrop. I don't know if you caught it, but this is what the author is trying to get us to understand. And it's not just for today, it's for the whole story. This, these two chapters are cast against two ways of living your life. In this story, you've got one man who's a fool. His name is Nabal. And he trusts in his own strength and his own wealth and his own kingdom. And you've got another man who's portrayed as a fool, Saul. He trusts in his spear, his swords, his, uh, uh, his bodyguard, his army. None of these things are keeping them safe. God took out Nabal and God is gonna take out Saul. But then you have two people in the story who are cast not as fools, but as wise. Abigail is wise because she speaks the word of God, and David is wise because he hears and obeys the word of God. And in, in the midst of all of these amazing little lessons that we can learn, they're all good, but they're only good in so much as they sit under the umbrella of this, two, this, this way of seeing everything. Is the way you're living wise or foolish? Psalm 53, one. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. All of these lessons are good, but they're only good if you see them through the lens of them being wise because this is the way God wants it. You can't cherry pick these lessons from the Bible and create some new religion or say, I'm gonna take some of this, but not this. I don't like these demands, but I love this stuff. And I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna hyper-focus on this and ignore all these other things. That's not the way the Bible works. It's all or nothing, and the reason why it's all or nothing is because all of it is viewed through this simple lens. You're either wise because you trust the Lord and you follow the Lord, or you're foolish because you say in your heart, there's no God where I don't need him. So as we close today, that's what I want ringing in your ears. This idea that every decision that you make, every scripture that you read is cast against this backdrop of either being wise or being foolish. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.